If you look at the work that Patrick Kennedy has done in San Francisco with micro units, he's really taking the single room occupancy unit and actually saying, what would a modern version of that look like? And how can we build new construction with that amount of small square footage and still have natural light and all those kinds of community amenities? And they're building new projects that are a couple hundred square feet per unit. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. This is your host, Mike Hancocks, and this is the latest in a series of podcasts recorded at the 2017 New Partners for Smart Growth Conference in St. Louis, Missouri. Our topic today is how tiny homes and smart infill housing can improve housing choices and spur community revitalization. My co-host today is Kate Meese, the Executive Director of the Local Government Commission. Hello, Kate. Hi, Mike. Pleased to be with you. Always a pleasure. And our guest today is Darren Dinsmore, the CEO of Build Bright. Hi, Darren. How are you today? Doing great. So, Darren... I'd like to give our audience an understanding of who the guests are a little bit as, a, as people. So can you tell us a little bit about how you ended up working on affordable housing issues and infill housing issues? So I'm originally a, a planner from Canada. I uh, came to the United States, came to California back in 1999. As a um, nonprofit planning director, really got involved in working with communities, doing community-based planning. And one of the big issues is infill development and today now more than ever affordable housing. So what, what is smart infill housing? Mm-hmm. How would you define that? Well, most cities, as you're aware, including St. Louis, where we are now, you know, have lots that are underutilized or could be utilized better or parking areas that could be used for housing and things. And it's just making better use of those lands where there are existing services, water, sewer, parks, schools, and how can we use those lands more efficiently and, and more effectively? Darren, you've lived in Truckee, which is a more rural mountain town. You live right outside of San Francisco. So can you talk a little bit about what infill and smart growth looks like across that transect? I think people think smart growth and they think high density, San Francisco, and there are communities that don't want to be San Francisco and shouldn't be. So what does smart growth look like in a community that's more like Truckee? Yeah, really good question. So, so Truckee, for instance, was one of the, the last incorporated cities in California. And it really was and grew as a bunch of sort of scattered neighborhoods in Placer County. And since they've incorporated, they've been basically trying to knit that community fabric together with roads, parks, schools, and infrastructure to really become that community in that town that's more walkable and, and friendly for its citizens. And so their type of infill isn't large-scale projects. It's, you know, small two- and three-story buildings, um, accessory dwelling units, even maybe tiny homes in your backyard. 
So you brought up tiny homes. So I have to ask you about your new tiny home project. You bought some tiny homes from a student project. I think our radio listeners would love to hear about what you're doing with those. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. So we give out an award for infill score every year to top cities. And the top award-winning large city last year was San Antonio, Texas. That means they score higher in terms of what are they actively doing to be infill ready. And I met the mayor, and she was an urban planner. And I said, what are you doing that's really cool to get change on the ground? And she said, well, we're working with high school kids and college kids to take tiny home plans, which are kind of all the rage right now, and to make them legal. So we're actually taking them off wheels. We're going to put them on foundation and make them legal in our city. And we're going to inspect them just like regular homes and put them through the building code process and give them a certificate of occupancy. So we went down to this event where they were auctioning them off. But unfortunately, the one thing they hadn't done was change their minimum unit size in their zoning. So after spending a year and a half on building these tiny homes and inspecting them, they were actually illegal in San Antonio, Texas. So we spent six months looking for where we could move this sort of village of tiny homes, looked at California cities, talked to a lot of cities about a partnership. And it turns out they're going to en- this project is going to end up in Sedona, Arizona, because we've got the county showing leadership. Coconino County just adopted a tiny house ordinance, and we're going to have the, the smallest legal housing in the United States approved in Coconino County as uh, tiny homes. What's the square footage of the... Yeah, so they're 220 square feet total, but if you actually look at the legal ground floor, 162 square feet. So we've been able to get the Coconino County to legally adopt 162 square foot tiny house as a primary dwelling unit. And then it will have its own accessory unit, which will be another tiny house. So two tiny houses on one small infill lot. So for our, our listeners, I, I think I don't know that I've ever seen a zoning ordinance anywhere that allowed units that were, you know, maybe smaller than six or 800 square feet. Yeah. So that's a pretty significant change. How did they institute that? Is it, is it in a limited area of the city or is it a special zone or? Yeah, really good question. So this was actually a countywide ordinance and it really was their director of sustainability taking a leadership role. They've been trying a lot of things. They have shipping container housing, and they're really looking at the challenge that their citizens are being faced with affordable housing in their area. Their county goes from Sedona all the way up to the Grand Canyon. They have a real variety of sort of economic opportunities and challenges, and they just wanted to make, make it very flexible for folks. And we've seen a lot more interest in tiny homes, and so local governments are having to figure out how to keep the zoning updated with the the new push for tiny homes. And that could be in highly impacted, very strong housing markets like San Francisco, who's doing a lot more tiny homes and affordable by design units. And then also communities that are struggling with uh, large homeless populations that are seeing this as a solution to quickly respond to housing the homeless. It's kind of weird that they the minimum house size is 800 square feet, resident size. And then there's all these hotels or older hotels, motels that they're not the big chains. They were built 60 years ago. They're kind of decrepit. And you've got people who live in those units as their primary residence because they can't, their financial situation is so tentative. So you've got lots of people who are kind of almost living on a full-time basis in a hotel room in a dilapidated old building, yet they won't 
adopt a housing ordinance that would allow units that were permanent to be that. And it's kind of a strange dynamic, and it seems like that's um, a lot of the challenges around affordability have to do with planners who have created zoning ordinances and perceptions of what housing should look like that are not consistent with what the market needs. Is that accurate? Yeah, that, that's a really good point. Well, I think a lot of this is to protect the you know surrounding property values and the perception of something that's different. If you look at the work that Patrick Kennedy has done in San Francisco with microunits, he's really taking, just as you said, the, the SRO, the single room occupancy unit, and actually saying what would a modern version of that look like? And how can we build new construction with that amount of small square footage and still have natural light and all those kinds of, of community amenities? And they're building new projects that are a couple hundred square feet per unit. So can you tell us a little bit about the infill housing score mm-hmm. uh, or the infill score and revitalization roadmap tool? Well, thanks for asking. So about a year ago, we launched this infill score tool. It's a tool for citizens, elected officials, and planners to kind of get a number in terms of their infill readiness. And it takes about 10 minutes online to calculate your score. And in the last year, without really any advertising, we've had 250 cities in seven countries and every state except Delaware, use the tool. So, Come on, Delaware, get with it. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right. <laughs> so we're seeing that there's a lot of interest and demand in uh, tools and strategies for smart infill. And where would folks go to take that test? There's a website, uh, www.infillscore.com, where you can research the 30 strategies that are identified there, calculate your score, see what other cities are doing, And then there's a roadmap tool, roadmap.infillscore.com, where they can actually develop their own action plan for their city. So one critical component of moving forward with any actions that might come out of of taking the test and getting the roadmap would be community engagement around those strategies. You started CrowdBright. I'd love to hear a little bit more about the CrowdBright tool and the dynamic of keeping up with what the needs of the community are. We heard a, a great quote this morning from Madeleine Albright that said, people are talking to governments on 21st century technology. The government hears them on 20th century technology and responds with 19th century ideas. So it's talking about, you know, our zoning code is greatly outdated and we're just operating at these different centuries, really, in the way we're responding. So tell us about CrowdBright and how it's trying to overcome some of these issues. Yeah, thanks for asking. And uh, we developed the CrowdBright tool starting in about 2010, after our firm taking the leading role in developing a regional plan for Lake Tahoe. And we spent a lot of money and a lot of time, a lot of meetings, 273 total meetings to get a regional plan adopted. And I thought that was something that was scalable and replicable. But when I look at the amount of money that we spent as an agency on that plan, I thought this this can't be replicated anywhere. So it really came down to, you know, how do we make this information more accessible to people? How do we get their fingerprints on the plans? How do we hold local government accountable? And how do we do it sort of cheaper, better, faster while giving people choices? And so where do people go to access that? The website's crowdbright.net, C-R-O-W-D-B-R-I-T-E. And there's about 90 projects on there and an interactive map, and you can see what other cities are doing. One city that we're currently working with right now in California is Mammoth Lakes. So we're using the CrowdBright tool 
to make sure that there's a shared vision for their downtown and to get public support for their downtown. And then we're using infill score and the infill roadmap tool to remove obstacles to infill development and downtown revitalization. And if you want to see what one of those projects looks like, it's online at um, connectmammothlakes.com. So what are some of the big things that communities can do to be infill ready? What are some of the, you know, the big rocks that they need to move? So really building public support for infill and where it's going to happen and aligning their infrastructure investments. And we've seen a lot of places where proposed developments and densification has backfired because we haven't, as planners, managed that conversation to communicate to the public the benefits of density done well. An example of that is um, in the press this week, San Diego kind of wants to throw out a lot of the work they've spent 20 years on doing their community plans because in, it says in the article that they've lost the fight for density. And maybe maybe density wasn't the question in, in the first place. It was about walkable, vibrant communities mm-hmm. and how do we actually mm-hmm. create those. And places where, you know, designed not only for us, but for the next generation as well. Yeah, I know that, you know, I have friends in the development community, and I don't think the development community is so opposed to it. Uh, in fact, they're in favor of it. It, it tends to be kind of a public approval issue. They have projects that they think that they're coming in with projects that are the kind of the state of the art in terms of walkability, density, whatever, and they're getting rejected at the approval process, right? So, mm-hmm. Yeah, and the most recent studies I've seen have shown that 60% of Americans prefer smart growth. They prefer walkable neighborhoods. So the market is certainly there. What are some of the, other than public approval, what are some of the other big challenges cities face in terms of becoming infill ready? What are What are some of the things they need to do Besides getting public approval. Yeah, yeah, really interesting. A, a lot of it is not only getting the infrastructure in the right place and, and, and the financing, but highlighting a lot of the work that the local government commission has done and being a leader in getting people to think about parking, you know, smart parking strategies, shared parking, managed parking, all of that kind of thing, that cities really need to rethink their standards and how, the, how they, uh, they measure their success. And then also, Kate led a program last year on sort of um, new finance tools for cities. And I think you had a new publication out on that Mm -hmm. that was fantastic. And we've been using it working all around the country and talking about sort of the new capital stack. And especially with what's happening in Washington right now, I think we have to be really creative locally and regionally on where we invest and how we can invest in a a smart way for this and, and future generations. Yeah, we need to get more out of our money. Darren, thank you so much for being here today. And thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Great. Well, thank you. And thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com. Or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.